Hello and welcome to another episode of Descent into Hell. This episode's a little bit different. I'm not interviewing anyone. I am actually going to present a recording of a talk I gave at Valparaiso University in Western Indiana last week. The topic is gender and spirituality. And more specifically, what does gender have to do with spirituality? And so we'll go ahead and jump into that. So what does gender have to do with spirituality? Actually, maybe more than you would think, but first, before we can have any kind of intellectual discussion on it, we have to define what our terms mean. And today, of course, it comes as no surprise that gender is a term that carries with it a bunch of different preconceived ideas. In the Orthodox Church, generally the Christian Church, we recognize that man was created male and female, as it says in Genesis. And in recent times, this sexual differentiation has come to be juxtaposed with an internal gender identity. Now, for the purposes of our discussion and purposes in discussing this with the, the broader world, I think it's important for us to recognize indeed a distinction between sex and gender, but one that's not so radical as many individuals would have us define it as. You see, in the Orthodox Church, we recognize male and female, but what is the locus of this distinction? We actually have a thousand years, the first thousand years of Christianity, where a number of Christians wrote about this, which may come as a surprise, because while the conversation we're having today is very distinct to our day, these writers were discussing other topics and, as a way to make their point, would go on to discuss sexual differentiation. And what we find when we look at these writers is that they all agree. Every single one that is considered a saint in the Orthodox Church say that sexual differentiation is biological, it's physical, and sexual differentiation is not located in the soul. Now this is strange. This is a strange topic maybe for us to discuss. What does it mean that that sexual differentiation is biological, but is not located in the soul? If we wanna look at anthropology, Christian anthropology, we can recognize that we are material and immaterial beings, but this is a unity in the human person. The human person is not a body alone, and the human person is not a soul alone. We do not believe that we shed our physical bodies when we die, never to be seen again. As Christians, we believe in the bodily resurrection. And so when we look at the distinction between the body and the soul, we have to recognize that the separation of soul from body at the time of death is something that is radically unnatural. And it's something to be mourned. 
However, it is not the disillusion of the human person. And at the end of the age, Christ comes back, the human body is raised and reunited with each individual soul. Now, the reason this is important to start our discussion in this way is because we must recognize that while Christian anthropology precludes us from the idea that there cannot be any legitimate distinction between one's internal sex and one's external sex, sex is important because of the bodily resurrection, because the body is important. So when discussing the concept of gender, we have to be extremely clear. And I'd like to highlight how I'm going to use it in the coming 10, 15, 20 minutes. But first, I wanna, I wanna clarify maybe something that I said. Christian anthropology precludes the idea that internally a man can be a woman or a woman can be a man because souls know no sexual differentiation. This doesn't mean that sexual differentiation is not important, mind you, but we'll get to that. Now, the reason I think we have to admit some sort of distinction between the term sex and gender is because of what I would call disposition. When you look at how people are using gender today to mean my preferences, how I present myself, a large part of these things are indeed socially constructed. Whether a man wears a dress or an Orthodox priest wears a robe that sort of looks like a dress if you're on the outside, it's not really a big deal. And it doesn't make him something that he's not. So gender here, how I would like to discuss it, is more about personality. It's more about disposition. You can have a man with more of a feminine disposition. It's nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, I myself, personality-wise, would fall somewhere on that spectrum, whereas my wife <laughs> would fall more on the masculine side of the spectrum. And these preferences, or even how you interact with the world, don't change your biological sex. So I, I would like to give you five, five different personality, this is called the big five, that sort of help inform us. And the reason it's important is because, as I said to begin with, gender actually has a lot to do with spirituality, a lot more than you may realize, because if we want to define spirituality, what is our goal? Our goal is to become like Christ, but not every single human person, not every single individual will respond to the same things the same way. This is why pastors are important. This is why discernment is important. So the big five are openness. So openness to intellectual curiosity, openness to new experience. And it ranges on a scale. You can think low in openness, high in openness. Same for all of these. Extroversion. You know, you often see this uh, juxtaposed against introversion. Extroversion is another one. 
conscientiousness, one's ability to stay organized, agreeableness. Um, you know, on the, on the negative side of agreeableness, you get people-pleasing. Um, and some people are just disagreeable, and it's nothing against them. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It's just they are not averse to conflict. And neuroticism. Neuroticism is one's capacity and sensitivity to negative emotion. Now, if you wanted to categorize these, I would say women are generally high in agreeableness and high in susceptibility to negative emotion. Now, this plays into our spirituality because of what one writer in the 20th century said, calling a distinction between two different kinds of souls. This is not a, a theological distinction. This is a pastoral distinction. He calls one soul a hard soul, one soul a soft soul. How does spirituality play into this? We can think of a, a hard soul. I don't even like to call it soul. Let's just call it disposition. We can think of someone having a, a harder disposition when they are not affected necessarily by negative emotion to an extreme degree, when they can stand up against someone that is trying to step all over them, be it a boss, doesn't matter who it is. It can be someone in authority. It can be, you know, a person, a person on the street trying to sell him a, a hat. And this disposition tends to also fall on the spectrum of laxity when it comes to responsibility, spirituality, and doesn't tend to obsess over his or her sins to, to a great degree. Now, if you want to talk about the soft disposition, it's basically opposite. Uh, you can trample all over. You know, this would be, I'm going to talk about myself here, very susceptible to negative emotion, anxiety, depression. So to the extent that if I come into contact with someone that's of a different disposition, and this person has, let's say, pastoral authority over me, but without discernment, and he wants to apply how he applies spirituality to himself, to me, which is constantly think of your sins, your failings, repent like you are the, you're the worst person in the world. Think of yourself as the worst person in the world. Maybe effective for him. For me, I would be crushed because consistently I'm thinking of my failures. Now, instead of laxity, this disposition would be prone to overscrupulousness. Overscrupulousness, which means attempting to get everything right all the time. Do it as right as you can. Now, these two different dispositions also have uh, a different response to the primary sin, as many Christian writers have called it, pride. Pride in the hard disposition looks like what we would normally understand to be pride, arrogance, boastfulness, uh, walks with a strut, um, happy to air 
his successes, these sorts of things. Things that we understand culturally to be pride. The second kind of pride, much more sneaky because we don't readily recognize it as such. The second form of pride is despair. And the reason despair is prideful is because it refuses to acknowledge the fact that we cannot forgive ourselves where God has forgiven us. This is the pride of Judas. It's the pride of Cain. Cain, Cain's sin, principally, outside of the sacrifice, was despair. And instead of coming back, like Peter did, after he denied Christ thrice, he wandered off. So our, the effectiveness of our spiritual practice is, go, is going to be different based on our disposition. Now we have societally, when we talk about gender specifically, we have stereotypes. Men don't cry. That's one. Um, maybe even one in the Christian church. Women don't talk. You know, like we, we have stereotypes and they can, they can do a lot of damage. And so breaking out of gender norms, for me, not a problem. The reality of the fact is we can't say that we are, in fact, even though I have more of a, what is classically understood to be a feminine disposition, that I am a female. It doesn't work that way. So, breaking out of gender norms, recognizing these things in yourself is extremely important for spirituality. And it's going to be as different as there are people in the world, but there are general patterns, which is what I've been talking, to, talking about up till now, that we can discern that may be helpful. I think the biggest caution, though, is not to get too wrapped up and place your identity in the disposition, because this is where our culture as run amok. Our identity ultimately is in Christ and our desire to be like Christ, our salvation, that is our goal. So don't get too wrapped up in the disposition or in the gender or in the what our society says you should be because you are a woman or what our society says you should be because you're a man. Women couldn't vote just a handful of years ago. In fact, it is Christianity that gives full personhood to women for the first time in history. You have Aristotle saying, a woman is just a deformed man. <sighs> just saying. <laughs> so I, I wanna talk a little bit more here um, about disposition, but this has to do with aspects of the soul. Now, the soul itself is simple, incorporeal, but it has what we call energies. These are like the parts of the soul, if you can afford me a crude saying, because strictly speaking, there are no parts because it's not materiality, which is divisible. There are three parts of the soul, according to Plato, and later picked up by Christianity, the intellectual aspect, which is where we rationalize, understand, direct our behavior. 
There's the incensive aspect, which is what we might understand in its negative form to be anger. And there's the appetitive aspect, which is the desiring capacity of the soul. Typically, we tend to think of the insensitive aspect as masculine and the appetitive aspect of desiring as feminine. In fact, we see in the Orthodox Church, we have hymnography, so saints, that uh, people that lived the Christian life faithfully up to and through death have, have essentially portions of their life written down and commemorated via hymns. And one thing that you see is the female martyrs because they displayed such courage, which is traditionally understood to be a masculine virtue. This plays into virtues as well. They're traditionally understood masculine virtues, feminine virtues, and so on, are called manly in our hymnography, not as a denigration to them being female, but as a recognition that they have in Christ overcome the division of male and female, not, it doesn't mean they're not female now. It means that in Christ, they have overcome this division and brought unity back to it in their own soul, in their own heart, in their own lives. And ultimately, this is where we have to struggle. Because recognizing, let's say, where, where your, your, your faults failures, difficulties lie in life, not even spiritually, just in life. Um, knowing, for instance, that I can be very sensitive to an authority figure coming to me and saying, I have a problem with what you did. You know, that helps to a certain degree. And it's, it's knowing as well that the purification of these parts, these aspects of the soul, is how we can adequately continue to live the spiritual life. Let me tell you what I mean. How many times when we get angry at something, we act in a way that we're ashamed of? Do we think, oh, I just wish I could cut that out of my life? Just that feeling that I get in my chest. I just, want to, I just want to take it and I want to throw it in the bin. I want to throw it away. You know, this is, this is the solution that Hinduism gives its adherents. Kill the desire, you kill the suffering. Okay? You kill what you, you know. That's not the solution for us as Christians. The solution is transformation. Because what you have is an, an, a soul that is disordered, that when properly ordered, allows you the capacity to continue to live in what can sometimes be absolute hell in life. So for instance, the proper ordering of the soul is that the intellectual aspect guides and guards the insensitive and the appetitive aspect. But what we see today 
call it what you will, consumerism, is that many of us, myself included, are led by our desires or by what we hate. This is why when you go on Facebook, if you make a negative post, you're going to get more interaction. The intellectual aspect is meant to lead. The insensitive aspect was given to us by God for zeal. This is what you would see in the martyrs, for instance. And the appetitive aspect was given to us for the sake of desiring God. And you, you even have some Christian writers that say, you know, you, your intellectual aspect, the capacity for memory, is for remembering God. So we recognize that these aspects of the soul are absolutely vital for our Christian journey. But they can be exploited by the demons, by the evil one. There's this great, this great passage in the Psalter, in the Psalms, that I have to throw in here. It may be a non sequitur. I'll accept that. The bones of men-pleasers are scattered. They are ashamed, and God despises them. Now, I particularly like that verse because I grew up a people pleaser. <laughs> and uh, it, can lead to, it can lead to some not so great things. Now, our goal, our, our ob objective as Christians is to obtain what I will call, along with St. Gregory of Nyssa, a gender reversal. What's a gender reversal? Well, if you're primarily a hard disposition, spiritually, what you need is to focus on your sins. Say the Jesus prayer, weep over them. If you're a primary of a soft disposition, prone to despair, anxiety, overscrupulosity, what have you, you focus on thanksgiving. Each are equal prayers and paths to God. But if we don't recognize that, let me back up. You may read something online that says, oh, you need to weep. You, you're just the t most, you're the chief of sinners. We say that on, on Sundays in the Orthodox Church. If it's reinforced externally for someone like myself, I take that very hard because I will naturally discredit, discount my own feelings about the situation and kind of think, oh, the external person knows and I'm just, you know, I'm trying to just slog on in my life. So we're to work on those things which, as a gender reversal, let's say, uh, very timid, I do not like conflict. I'm talking about myself because I don't know about anyone else from experience. I generally don't like to speak about myself when I speak, but I think this is important. I'm generally averse to conflict. I love to help other people out. In fact, I can gain negatively, mind you, a lot of my self-worth from doing things for other people. 
But I could tell you that leads to burnout. It ultimately leads back to the same thing that we're trying to avoid, despair, anxiety. So what have I done? <laughs> well, um, I started putting my foot down. It's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. Um, maybe if you're a hard disposition, you can give a little and say, you know what? I feel really strongly about this, but I'm not going to push it that hard. Now, the issue we're having today, and I have to be honest with you, I don't know if anything that I just said makes any sense. So <laughs> just take what you take and leave everything else behind. We'll do um, questions if we have questions, because I think that's far more interesting than just me talking. Um, but but this, is, this is where, in our culture today, we, we're, we're running amok again, is that we're taking these dispositions and we're taking a societal standard of dispositions, let's say the gender norm, and we're saying gender non-conforming people because the majority of men or the majority of women act a certain way or should act a certain way. Uh, these gender non-conforming people, you know, maybe they actually have the essence of the, fem the female inside of them and they really should be a female. It's a cop-out because it's placing your identity in ultimately something that is sand, is something that shifts over time. Now, I will say, just before we segue into questions, that there's a, a very important distinction uh, that we need to make in the trans community, or we need to understand as Christians. One is one of gender dysphoria, which is, we have about a hundred years of data on this. And we know that gender dysphoria, comparatively, is pretty rare. It's pretty rare, and it mainly affects men. Clinical gender dysphoria, as it's been studied, is 0 0.005. 2.01% manifests in men, which is, to give you perspective, 1 in 10,000, and 0 0.002 to 0 0.003 in women. That's 1 in 33,000. Now, to put it even more in perspective, America and countries do this. They have a criteria by which they measure rare diseases. And in America, a rare disease is considered, a disease is considered rare when it affects 86 people out of 100,000. Okay, 86 people out of 100,000. If we apply that to the metrics of gender dysphoria, gender dysphoria in men is 10 out of 100,000. Gender dysphoria in women is three people out of 100,000. Now, why do I bring this up? Because in the last 20 years, we've seen a flip, not just of the sexual differentiation uh, demographic, but also of the age demographic. 
in the last 10 years, well, really from 2009 to 2017, the number of people being diagnosed with gender dysphoria increased in England, and I'm citing England here because they have more data right now, 4,000%. To the extent that Pew Research released a study in June of this last year, so 2022, saying that one out of 20, one out of 20 young adults, anywhere from 14 to 25, just, just that age demographic, one out of 20 are identifying as trans. This is what we would call, and very unpopularly call, a psychogenic disease social contagion. Eric Waters wrote a book called Crazy Like Us, where he details four different psychogenic diseases throughout history. This was in 2011. It's not one of the, trans is not one of them. But he wrote a recent article in September of last year saying we would do well to recognize the lessons that we have learned from these other things. One of them being anorexia nervosa, citing one case, which was, it was basically an American phenomenon until someone in China was exposed to this idea, subsequently died from it, and then very, very quickly, within a matter of years, it caught on. Now I make this distinction because today we have uh, primarily a demographic of young women that are identifying as trans. Lisa Littman did some research in 2017 and she discovered that of these individuals, 86% were on the spectrum 68% were suffering from some other mental illness or psychological uh, health concern and made the, made the striking point that if this has been so rare in the past and not just, not just rare by rare standards, but very, very rare, You can, you can make an argument that, sure, maybe some people feel safe, safer and, and the numbers are gradually going up. You cannot make an argument for a complete shift in demographic. Not only a complete shift in demographic, but also a complete shift as to when this manifests. And as of this demographic manifests somewhere between 13, 14, 15 years old. Gender dysphoria clinically would have to be in, it would have to manifest very young, three, four years old, and persist over time. Now I make this distinction because on the one hand, we have to recognize that gender dysphoria is real. It, body dysmorphia is real. The pain that people experience from it is real. The feelings that cause the pain are real. 
And you can have these very real things without admitting that in fact a man is a woman or a woman is a man. These things are very real, but there's also a flip side to it. Psychogenic diseases are real. And the important point for this is simply to say that we cannot place our identities on something so amorphous as the way we feel. And I, you know, I don't know what else to say about that other than the, it's not the desire for the end goal. It's in every person. We, we, you know, we put it on top of things all the time that aren't going to fulfill it, but it's in every person. The issue is now, since I've been doing this work, I know countless young women that at 13, 14, 15 were convinced that this was their true identity and they needed it. They were fast-tracked to hormones. They were fast-tracked to double mastectomies. They were fast-tracked all the way down the line only to find out when they're 18, 19, 20. It didn't help anything. And guess what? I no longer feel that way. So I've talked for too long. Why don't we do questions? Well, that's it for the talk. If you're interested in the question and answer section, you can actually find that under the members only videos on YouTube. It's two bucks a month, or if you want to give more, you can, and it helps sustain this program. 